Welcome to Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. All good things must come to an end, and unfortunately, it is also the case with this limited series on digital therapeutics. Thanks to all the brilliant guests for making the time, but more importantly, for innovating and trailblazing for all of us, health consumers and patients. I also want to thank you, our thousands of listeners, for providing valuable feedback and encouragement. While this limited series is over, there's a lot of hard work ahead for the industry and a lot of experiences to be shared. So I will be continuing these discussions at the HealthXL DTX community from here on out. Just go to healthxl.com slash DTX. That's health, letter X, letter L, dot com slash DTX. In this final episode of DTX Limited Series, we're back with Brian Dolan founder and lead editor of Exits and Outcomes, and my journalistic partner on this podcast. We rewind back the last five months of the industry in a very succinct, eh, about 20 minutes or so. But before we dive in, I got to know Brian even better in the last five months. His dedication to real journalism, meticulous attention to detail, and his digital health detective skills left me, well, sort of speechless. And now, we jump to my conversation with Brian. Brian Dolan, welcome back. We recorded our first episode together on January 5th. Now it's five months. And for our listeners, I'm here with Brian Dolan, founder and lead writer at Exits and Outcomes. Also, my journalistic partner on this podcast. And as I think I coined the term digital health detective, which I prefaced that I coined it and you don't call yourself that. Yeah, I've gotten a few emails of people referencing that. I appreciate what it's done for the brand. But yeah, no, that's that's very much a, a Eugene creation and not self-described, but it's accurate. Yeah, no, I'm going to embrace it. Happy to be back, Eugene. Thanks, thanks for having me on for the last podcast episode here. Yeah, I know it's a little bit bittersweet. And I know when we set this out, and to my surprise, you agreed to zoom in with one very pointed question to every guest that we've had so far. I do have to say on some of them, you took it a little easier than others, probably not on purpose, but just a, a comment. And so again, I appreciate you joining me on this journey and now 21 other guests, I think. But for our listeners that might just be by accident tuning into this particular episode, maybe a little bit of the storyline that we came up around digital therapeutics is initially, I know we kicked this off with broadly what it is, where it is, and some of the happenings up until January 5th. We went into the definition with Digital Therapeutic Alliance and both Megan and Jessica, who's now moved on. I know she's still part of the DTA. We then jumped to early trailblazers, people like Eddie and Ned Cox and many others. We hopped over to first Berlin, Germany, to talk about the regulatory status there. We had some of the, I'll say, early trailblazers on that side of the pond, from Munich to London to Dublin. And then we finished off with a little bit of an interview from an investment perspective two awesome investors in that space, granted from only the European side of it. And then finally, with just a little taste of Southeast Asia with Wealthy Therapeutics at the end. And here we are wrapping up sort of five months. And if I had to describe me awaiting for the exits and outcomes newsletter and or news that keep popping up, I feel like we can be doing a podcast a day and still not keep up with all of the digital therapeutics news. 
I think it's been an eventful five months, but I would say on, you know, the prescription digital therapeutic side of things, it's been a bit of a slower burn in terms of progress. I think there's been a couple of developments that have been simmering and we've been tracking on the other side of the coin. As I said, in our original episode two, I believe it was, which I listened to this morning, by the way, and I think it, it stands. I don't disagree with anything I said five months ago. I think that's good. It's all still true for me today. And my perspective is um, still as it was back then. But I think in those five months where much of the change has been is on the enrollment side. So digital health companies that are selling into self-insured employers in the US, as well as working through health plans to get to some of those smaller employers. But that side of things, obviously, there's just been so much action, whether it's big funding rounds, some SPAC mergers, some IPO talks, but, but mostly really big consolidation between either health insurers snapping up telehealth companies or other large players buying similar or, peers. Or telehealth companies also buying up, right? right? Yep. <laughs> and so I think to me, that's where most of the action has been and less so on this prescription digital therapeutic side. I think a lot of the issues we were talking about back in January are still there today. Not a ton of progress around reimbursement, for example, distribution. None of the companies that we've been tracking have really seen substantial leaps and bounds in, in adoption in the past five months. And but it still feels like they're all just getting started, even though that's kind of the same conversation we had in January. And we probably could have that conversation in the fall of last year as well. You know, I think yeah, one final point on that, the fact that there's been all this action, all this financial activity, mergers, acquisitions, consolidation on the employer side, I do think that has an impact on everything else going on in digital health, because I think philosophically, a lot of these prescription digital therapeutic companies got started years and years ago with the idea that nobody's really figured out how to make digital health work. And so maybe we need to rely on the traditional healthcare system and move these interventions through just as if they were pharmaceuticals. We know that's a tried and true path for the pharmaceutical, for the molecule. Let's try it with software. And so you know, I don't think that's true hundred percent across the board, but I think a lot of these companies have this idea. Maybe that's the way since no one else has figured it out. Let's focus on interventions that make sense for that and, and kind of get it to market that way. Yeah. What's changed in 2021 is that there are now many companies that are you know worth a billion or more dollars. There are public companies. Clearly, some companies have at least found a way to scale. And so that's it's a very different picture. I think most companies starting up today are, are probably not thinking about prescription as the way to market because all the investors see these giant valuations for these companies that are on the enrollment side, yep. which of course has its own group of problems. But I think my point is we're seeing like this, this huge amount of gravity on the enrollment side. And I think that's going to suck in some of these prescription companies to maybe bend or break their business models and become more like the companies that we're seeing IPO and succeed in other ways today. Yeah. And, and so I actually would love to disagree just so we have a good banter, <laughs> but for our listeners, and maybe I'll just highlight a couple of things. What I really meant by, yes, there's a lot of announcements, but if I look at just as an example from the people that we interviewed, Volantis, the big thing you said, they're just aiming for 10 to 15 million in revenue. It was just released. Um, Pair Therapeutics kind of heading and sort of saying, maybe we'll also become a platform for other DTXs and CBTs. I know there's a bunch of stuff that happened with Akili, right? Like Miami raised 8 million bucks. The interesting part what you allude to, I think, and this is where I agree. So there's funding rounds and some announcements, but from an adoption perspective, we've seen, I'll say much more adoption, maybe not fully engagement in the employer market. So maybe we can unpack a little bit there because part of this, if I look at somebody like Peter Hames from Big Health, the premise from the beginning early on in the early days was we can make something better than a drug and it doesn't need to be prescribed through a normal channel, and this is our channel. 
Somebody like, let's use Eddie and Achilles said, you know what? Something that will ultimately biologically impact your brain, right? Then that needs to go through the prescription channel. But I think those are just very two different hypotheses and different technologies with the go-to-market. Let's stick with the employer side and maybe a little bit of what you're seeing, because it sounds like you've seen a lot of traction there and maybe a lot is a overstatement, but some nuggets that you can unpack for our listeners on the employer side. Yeah, I think some of the things I was saying before, I think they're just indications. Obviously, it's not just about IPOing. It's not just about raising tons of money and, and finding a SPAC merger. I think all those are versions of financial exits maybe, but they're also indications, hopefully true indications that these companies have scaled up. So they've found traction with customers. You know, they, They've gotten this out to a much larger group of people, consumers and patients. And I think that it's hard to say that that's true for the prescription digital therapeutics group. I, I don't disagree that there hasn't been news. And as you say, I've put out yeah. 23, probably 22, <laughs> 23 weekly issues every Friday focused on the digital therapeutics side, the pharma side of digital health. And so there's plenty going on, but I, I really think it's behind the scenes, trying to get reimbursement, trying to spin up new CPT codes to help buffer some of these business models on the provider side to add some service revenue. And so there is incremental progress, but there's no company that has risen up or, or scaled up in any meaningful way as of, let's call it mid 2021 right now. Whereas that's clearly not the case on the employer side. There's plenty of examples. I, I think your point about some of these, you know, I would call it a pivot. I think Pair Therapeutics has always said they want to be a platform company, but for sure, they're now really touting that more than they probably have in, in recent years. But if you think about that company, it was kind of a roll up. They started by acquiring and licensing all these interventions, right. mostly from small companies and academics. And so they've always had this platform mindset. But yeah, some of this recent press that they've gotten or, or written, it's it looks like yeah they're trying to partner with other digital therapeutics companies and become a distribution layer as well. We unpacked a little bit of the employer. We started shifted pair with the example, but in the and look in the prescription market in general, things take longer. Obviously, in the DTX space, one would argue actually if you take some of these. I'll say logos as examples, it's been eight to 10 years, mm -hmm. depending on the company. And so one would argue the old adage about pharma and pills taking 10 to 12 years and 1 billion plus, it's almost coming true, maybe not from an investment perspective, but in the prescription DTX. What do you think, again, not tremendously happened in the last five months, but we had a big push from the FDA, so straight to market during the pandemic. And so do you feel that will help these companies to get there faster, quicker, or are there other challenges ahead of the prescription DTXs? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think when the FDA um, made that announcement and put that waiver in place, I was really curious to see how many companies would take advantage of it. And everyone yeah. I talked to said this should be a layup for Achilles. Of course, within a couple of weeks, it seemed like they were on the market and, and really soon after they actually won their FDA de novo. Yep. So. I think it really worked out for that group. And there's been a couple others as, as I've written, and it's been very quiet. I think about half the companies that have done it haven't made any announcement about it. Hmm. And so Pear has a product, Kili has a product, and there's a couple of others, but I think the others, you know, I, I just happened upon it. It's not really easy to figure out who took advantage of the FDA waiver and, and who didn't because most of these companies are keeping it quiet. And I think it probably is because they recognize there's some risk. I think this is sort of an experiment and this is all really outside of my scope of a full understanding, but there's clear risks if they don't do well under this waiver, if they don't drive adoption of their product, if they have any issues on the adverse event side, they are inviting a lot of risk by launching yep. pre-FDA. 
And yeah, I'm curious if some of those products get pulled off or if the FDA just grants a full waiver in perpetuity to the ones that took advantage of it. I don't know. As far as I can tell, there's just not a whole lot of those products that went to market. It's not like a particularly rich data set that we're going to be able to learn a ton from. It may just be four or five products that we can take a look at in six months to a year from now. But yeah, no, it's a great question. I, yeah, I don't think anything much has changed since those companies have put their products to market with the exception of Achille getting to Nova Clearance. Everything else is just sort of out there and there's no real easy way to tell if they're doing well or, or not. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from, oh wait, it's a question takeover by none other than Jessica DeMassa, health innovation reporter, host, and executive producer of WTF Health. What's the future health? Let's see what question Jessica has for Brian today. All right, Brian Dolan, I'm a big fan of your digital health detective work and exits and outcomes. But what I really love is when you lay out all the clues and start theorizing about what will happen next. So based on what we know about the market, regulatory and reimbursement sentiment for DTX, and what we know about the love big healthcare has for blockbuster drugs, drugs that generate a billion dollars in annual revenue, predict the future for us. What does the first blockbuster DTX look like? When do you think we'll see it? Do you think any of today's players already have it in market? And if not, we'll give you an out here, Brian. What do you think the hallmarks of a blockbuster DTX will be? Is it a prescription DTX or not? Does it come out of a pharma partnership or an independent DTX company? Is it standalone or wrapped around a pill? What does it treat? Brian Dolan, give us your best guess about the first blockbuster DTX. Okay, man, that is a huge question from Jessica DeMassa, who is the executive producer and host of WTF Health. Uh, it makes sense because her YouTube show, WTF Health, stands for What's the Future? So, you know, I'm a skeptic. I haven't seen anything yet that has led me to believe there is a blockbuster drug-like opportunity for a digital therapeutic company yet. I mean, have we seen a single commercialized prescription digital therapeutic intervention that has managed to post even 10 million in annual revenue yet? I don't know for sure, but I don't believe we have. So it's still way too early for me. I'd want to be on the other side of Medicare reimbursement. So whatever CMS does with, say, a new benefit category or something. I'd also want to see, you know, what are the PBMs going to do with their digital health formularies, which currently are very much just employer-focused digital health programs. What are they going to do with prescription digital therapeutics? How are they going to add those? And then what effect will that have on the price of those interventions? Um, that's just two examples. I think there's a long list of things that would probably need to be resolved and we'd have to have a little bit more clarity on before I would feel comfortable thinking about what a blockbuster digital therapeutic would look like. But, you know, from where I sit today, I just don't see it. So the next is probably one of my favorite, and I've actually gotten comments on the question that I ask of DTX eats the pill or the pharma companies buy DTX. And we sort of touched on the employer, I'll say pure play direct on their own. Now would love to get your thoughts, what you've seen transpired in the last five months and what your thoughts are on this pharma 
I'll say frenemy type of relationship, right? And we have some examples of somebody like David Klein with Click Therapeutics is very much marching together with pharma and with the BI deal, but there's others that are toying. So we'd love to unpack that from where you stand. Yeah, I think that's an example of, at least from what I've been tracking, an area of DTX where I haven't really seen much happen in the last five months. I know a few sort of smaller pharmaceutical companies have done click-like deals with other DTX companies. I think I've tracked maybe half a dozen in the last five months. And there's nothing particularly unusual about any of them. They all look, yeah, I'd say very click-like. And in, in as much as we can learn about the agreement from the press releases, they look to be you know, pretty similar. But I think the other pieces that I track each week is some of the clinical trials. How are they progressing? So we're seeing some that are getting delayed. So I think maybe that is something that has changed is just, you know, some of these trials, they don't seem to be affected by the pandemic and other ones, they're pushing them off a year or more. I know one of Apple's trials got pushed way back and no, no reasons are usually given in clinicaltrials.gov for delays like that. But I think that's pretty notable. I've noticed that fairly frequently. And again, I don't really have much of frame of reference because I've only been tracking these for a year or so, but it seems like there's a lot of that going on. And it just means a lot of that evidence data, we're not going to see it until 2023, 2024. And we were expecting it later this year, or early next. That certainly stretches out timelines, as you're saying before. I mean, prescription digital therapeutics are, in the end, it seems like they're taking almost as much time as some pharmaceuticals to, to get to market. And you have to hope maybe that's just the early pioneering versions yep. of this and the, and the future ones will be much quicker. But yeah, so far they, they haven't been much quicker than pharmaceuticals, it seems like. Let's chat. And I know you're tracking some of that somewhat across the globe where the data is truly available, like in Germany with uh, DIGA. But let's talk a little bit about pricing. Any more insights in the last five months on pricing? And I guess you can look at both sides, both employer, which are usually very private contracts, but also the more public prescription pricing. Yeah, I would say I've done more work on the prescription side of it in the last five months. And yeah, as you say, and mostly that's because Giga has, I'm not sure what the word they use, but they've accepted more prescribable interventions into, I don't know if they call it a formulary, but- I think it's up to 15 or so. Yep. Last I checked, I mean, as of Friday, so as of three days ago, it was 15. So that's the bulk of the data set that I have. I think there's another four or five that are US-based that I've managed to track pricing for. And yeah, and so out of that 20, call it 20 interventions, and again, these are all prescription prices, the average price of those 20 is, is around 635, and that's US dollars. And again, I think this is true for the vast majority. Most of them price it on a 90-day dosage, since this is more of a time dosage, not a, an amount dosage. In DIGA, you can kind of see that, but there's a few exceptions. Some companies actually are longer doses than 90 days, and that's a little bit of noise in the data. But, you know, and I think if you compare the average, I don't know the numbers, but if you compare the average price of the German government-listed prescription digital therapeutics to the four or five we know best, the pricing in the US is much higher. I think it, it's probably, call it between 700 and and $1,000 in the US, so just again, based on those five or six commercialized prescription digital therapeutics. Which is interesting. Uh, had a whole discussion on, I think with even Matthew Hull to saying the pricing is still crazy. But if you look at, let's say, Achille and an ADHD molecule drug, it is still cheaper in theory. And again, based on the use cases, as a parent, I would probably want my child to try a game before I get them on Ritalin. I think we'll see some interesting plays on, on some of those models and comparisons. Achilles is one of, in the US, I, I believe it is the least expensive of the prescription digital therapeutics with pricing that I've been able to track down. 
And so they advertise the price as $450. And again, I think that's for three months, but they also have a little parenthetical aside that says, oh, but if you get it now, it's less than that. So I think it's probably around 400, but I'm kind of guessing, but you're right. And one thing that I think is important, the attention piece of it, ADHD also includes hyperactivity. And so Endeavor RX doesn't cover the entire ADHD spectrum. It's really just focused on, on attention. How do you parse that? Is that half the price of a drug? I don't know, but it's worth pointing out. Yeah. How do you put a value on that part of it? So we can continue rewinding and digging in and probably spend hours, but neither one of us have time. And this is part of the reason why this whole podcast was set up as limited series as well. I'll be frank, I underestimated the amount of time that I would need to spend. And you probably also underestimated (laughs) the time. So again, I want to thank you for joining. But one of the guests said, and I'm referring to Chris Bergstrom said, digital therapeutics as a term needs to disappear. I know you and I can always joke around that digital health, if each of us had a penny, that it's just health in a digital world, which I'm guilty as well. Your thoughts on, are we very far away from the word digital actually disappearing from this digital therapeutics term, or doesn't really matter? (laughs) Yeah, I think ultimately it doesn't really matter. I think it's a fun talking point. I think most keynotes at digital health conferences will include a line about that term changing or digital being dropped probably for the next decade, but we still call it email. We make a distinction between email and the mail we get in our physical mailboxes. So I don't know. I mean, this is just a cultural thing, right? There's just pieces of our language that we allow to stick around. And I think it's a question of, it's probably going to be generational. And maybe my grandkids aren't going to call these digital therapeutics if they still exist. But I think you and I probably will continue to, because they're going to always (laughs) feel a little foreign to us. Even 15 years from now, it's going to be weird that medicine is practiced this way. But I don't know. Yeah, this is a linguistics question. And I think For me, as a journalist who I write for the industry, I don't write for general consumers. I think these words, they can be called jargon. I think that's fine. I think it's important not to use jargon when your audience is not in the industry. But you know, I think casting it in a more positive light, I think it's important to use precise terms if you can. And I think if we just start talking about therapeutics, oh, we need we need better reimbursement for therapeutics and we need parity for visits. And just how do you have that conversation if you don't make distinctions? It's silly. So I, I think the conversation is kind of a silly one because we obviously need these words until yep. or if these become an accepted part of, of healthcare. So I think we're a long way off for a lot of these fronts. As we said a few times here, progress is slow. I, I don't think this is already such a mainstay of healthcare that we're just going to start referring to it and lumping it in with every other therapeutic that that doesn't make sense to me, but I'm happy to be wrong. I'm I'm just hearing a lot of if it's still around, which again, I think it's the combination of the terminology evolution of these products, the channels, how they become part of something else. We've alluded to lots of acquisitions. And I do see personally that in the pharma world, I think many DTXs may become the new patient support programs. That's just my Mm -hmm. two cents on it. In standalone, I think they will ultimately end up competing, especially in the neurodegenerative diseases, because those have been proven very hard from a molecular perspective. So, So I I think those things will evolve as you're tracking week to week. I'm looking forward to it. I know that we also made a little bit of a marriage for at least one portion of it with Health Excel. We're still talking about the the Health Excel slash Exits and Outcomes report, which also covers a lot of the PDTs. And then you've been sending folks my way as well, Brian. Thank you. And I just, there's just so many amazing entrepreneurs out there, people from Freespear, Bioforum, Medrhythms, Mahana, Sidekick. I can keep going and going. And this is not to mention the amazing stuff that's going around the world. 
I just spoke to uh, an entrepreneur out of Poland who is trying to build almost like a Somerist-like product for Eastern Europe. So lots to do. But with all of that, I just want to, again, thank you for joining me on this journey of now 23 episodes. And it is limited series. And who knows what's going to happen afterwards. As of now, I need to take a break. Yeah. Thanks for having me along for the ride, Eugene. It's been great. I know I've learned a lot. I think these episodes are typically not a full hour, right? So it's not quite 24 hours worth of content. Maybe it's half that, but I think there's a real, there's just, it's a incredible resource for those interested in digital therapeutics to go back and, and to listen through these interviews. I think people will continue to learn a lot and it's evergreen. I think People yep. are going to listen in on these interviews for the, at least the next couple of years. So congratulations on putting it together. That's a great library. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks for tuning into Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, production of mission-based media. Be sure to hit subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified if we launch season two of these series, where I may or may not speak with dozens of leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Brian Dolan's exits and outcomes, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. You can also join the HealthXL DTX community at healthxl.com DTX, where I will be continuing these discussions. You can connect with me personally on Twitter at HealthEugene. I'm Eugene Burhoch. Maybe catch you next time. <laughs>